You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome to another episode of the Collaborative Warriors podcast. I'm your host, Jazz Kang. Brady is off, but we do have an upgrade today. Uh, joining me for this episode is ESPN's Dave Pash. Dave, I got to ask you, this is your fifth game of the week. How are you keeping up, my man? How do you have the energy to keep doing this? I'm good, Jazz. You know, doing a lot of these games at home, it does save your body. Now, I'm going to be on site for the, the Warriors-Lakers game, but the other games this week have all been from home, so... Uh, it's, it, it's a lot easier when you're just, you know, walking downstairs into your office to call the game as opposed to getting on a plane. That's right. You can just do it in a, in a, it have the, have the suit, the, the shirt, the tie and the, and the blazer on, but nobody knows that you're wearing some Jordan shorts underneath. So <laughs> <laughs> you're doing okay. Um, before we jump into the Warriors Lakers game, like you mentioned that you'll be calling on Sunday, I, I did want to ask what's this been like for you kind of even going into arenas, uh, dealing with the, the no fans in the building and just the difference in calling a game between, you know, let's just say, obviously, the beginning of last season compared to the one that we're dealing with now. Yeah, it seems like the games that I'm actually on site are the ones that are rare. Uh, most of the games that I've been doing, I've been doing from home, whether it's college football, NBA, college basketball. I do the Arizona Cardinals and all the games this year were in our booth at the stadium. Even the road games, we had two 60-inch monitors that we do the game off of. So, and, and there were actually a couple of games since the 49ers we're playing at State Farm Stadium. There are a couple of games where we're calling a Cardinal road game and the 49ers are playing a game behind us. So it's been very strange. Uh, the, the last time that I was on site for a game was in LA. And, you know, obviously not having anybody around LA Live, no one at Staples Center. I mean, you're so used to, especially for a Laker game, LA Live being packed before the game, everybody outside getting pictures by the statues. So it's, uh, it's just hard to put in words. I guess I've become used to it. You know, you, you kind of like, it, it's just assumed everywhere you go, you're going to have a mask. There aren't going to be fans. There's not going to be atmosphere. I was in the bubble and, you know, that was the first time I had done anything where either you're in a studio or you, you didn't have any fans. So that was strange. Um, it, but now, like, I, I think back to what the bubble was like and, you know, that, that was probably more of a live atmosphere than, you know, anything else we've been doing. You know, most of the games obviously are at home, so there's no fans there. And, you know, I just think the NBA has done a good job to try to make it look as good as it can on television, you know. What's, I do, I do want to ask this, what's one of the biggest differences you're finding with, with covering the two? Like, you know, just in terms of missing the, the atmosphere, are you able to kind of get a better, get a better gauge of what's happening in the game? Because you can hear the players, you can hear the coaches barking instructions. How, how has that been from that perspective? Not really. Uh, I mean, you can hear more. There's no question. You can hear more doing the Laker blazer game the other night. And I could hear LeBron say something to one of the officials, but you know, for the most part, especially when you're doing the game from home I and mean, you're missing things there, you can't, you know, a lot of times, like if there's a run, let's say, you know, we saw this last night, Blazers were making a run and all of a sudden LeBron, we cut to LeBron coming into the game. 
where if you're at the arena, you can see the coach go to LeBron. You can see LeBron get up, start to walk towards the scorer's table. Those are just things you miss. Uh, the interaction on the sideline, uh, some of the interaction away from the play, um, obviously not being able to have contact with the officials. If there's something controversial going on, you're left to either guess or wait until they make an announcement. So uh, it, it's the stuff that, you know, the little things that you can really help the viewer understand um, that you're just, you're in, you're helpless. You're in a position where you can't help the viewer. So uh, I, I think the viewers have been patient with us knowing that we're doing this uh, from home. Um, and even when you're on site, you know, you're not on the court. So again, you're still, you're still missing things. Uh, I think we're all grateful to be working jazz. We're all grateful to be doing games and, and trying to do the best we can to, you know, document the game for the fans. But I know we all are looking forward to the days when hopefully we're back to normal. We're doing the games on the court um, and, and we can we, we can get the full experience and then deliver that to the viewer. Yeah, I'm, ho I'm hoping that, you know, again, I, I feel like for the first time over the last couple of months, just generally, there's a little bit more optimism about the fact that, OK, things there is a light at the end of the tunnel. So, you know, we're hoping that we do get there sooner than later. I, I don't think it's going to happen in terms of 100 percent capacity for the playoffs. But, you know, if they can even get 40, 50, 60 percent of the fans, it'll kind of and, and you, you know, you guys are allowed back in into the arena actually doing the game. I think that'll that'll kind of, you know, get things semi feeling back to normal. But we're still a ways from feeling that. Uh, you mentioned you were covering the, the Lakers and the, and the Blazers. Lakers finally, you know, got a big win. Dennis Schroeder made his return. Uh, he had 22 points. And the Dubs also played uh, on, on Friday night. They ended up getting a 130-121 win over the Charlotte Hornets. Kind of a revenge game for them. Draymond Green was amazing, 19 assists. Um, they're starting to find their footing a little bit with the Warriors. When you're watching this team play so far this season, and it's taken them some time, you know, they've been up and down, up and down throughout most of the entire schedule since they started. But they look a lot better overall, turning into a top five team defensively. When you're watching this team play, I, and I have to ask this, and I, I, people are probably sick of thinking about it, but if Clay Thompson was in the lineup, do you think they'd be able to compete with a team like the Lakers and, and the Clippers, or would they? Would you, or do you think they'd still be a step below them? Boy, if 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 Clay Thompson is Clay Thompson, you know, if he's back to where he was before both of these injuries, oh, there's no question they could they could compete. Um, uh, Kelly Oubre, the way he's playing right now, I mean, the only time that I had the Warriors this year was Christmas at Milwaukee. And that was obviously a bad game, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, and everybody still get used to each other. I mean, Oubre is playing at, at an incredibly high level right now. Wiseman is legit. There's no question. Draymond Green is playing some of his best basketball right now. Steph obviously is an MVP candidate. So I don't think there's any question they would be up there with, the Lakers, Clippers, and Utah, and Brooklyn, and Philly, if Clay were there. Well, you, you mentioned Wiseman, and that's another guy I wanted to ask you about. Like, like you said, I mean, you, you haven't probably seen him in live in person like that when you're covering the game since, since the blowout against the Bucks. But, you know, he just returned a couple of games ago. And I love the way he plays. I mean, we're joking and really calling him the vacuum because he's just sucking everything up from around the rim. He can catch any alley-oop, anything you throw up there. When you look at his potential, and especially in today's NBA, I mean, you've been working with ESPN for, you know, roughly 18 years now. You're looking back at, at what this team, you know, what the league was like back then. You remember, you know, there was seven-footers, guys like, you know, Will Perdue and, and, you know, Greg Ostertag, you're putting on the block and saying, you know, take up the space. And now you look at a guy like Wiseman, who's coming in around the same height, seven feet, seven one. When you when you look at him and, and and his potential, especially with the game, the way the game is played today, what do you think his ceiling could be like? Do you think he has a potential to become an all-star, like a legitimate year-in, year-in guy that you can build around? Or is he going to be, you know, a 15 and 10, 16 and 10, where he's doing what he does, but that's just kind of the role of a, of a five at this point in, in today's NBA? 
You know, that's a great question because I think about DeAndre Ayton for Phoenix, right? He is a back-to-the-basket uh, type player who can face up, but he's not today's center. I don't know yet about Wiseman. I feel like Wiseman is more like today's NBA center where you can stretch the floor. You know, I think Aiton obviously can run the floor and Wiseman is that way too. I, I think Wiseman impacts the game in a lot of different ways. Uh, even in that Milwaukee game, um, I, I was texting with a couple people after the game, like, man, he, he's, he's legit. I mean, we barely saw him in college. There was all, all the hype coming out of high school and then you know, he played three games. So we just, we didn't know much about him. Um, and you don't know, you know, how it's going to translate when you get to the NBA level, but clearly the game's not too big for him. Uh, I, I just, everything I've seen from him so far tells me uh, that he's got all-star potential and maybe higher than that. Uh, he, he's got great skill. So I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm really excited to see him against the Lakers. Yeah, and he's, he seems like he's going to be a building block for that franchise. And, you know, we saw with the Warriors over their, their five-year run where they're making the finals year in and year out that they were doing it with Zaza Pachulia and, 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 and JaVale McGee. And no disrespect to those guys, they're not exactly, you know, top-end talents that you're looking at and saying they're going to be a cornerstone of, of a franchise. When you're looking at even that potential, the, the top three protected pick that the Dubs have uh, from the Minnesota Timberwolves, who had the worst record in basketball at this point, when you look at that, what do you think Bob Myers should be doing? Like we, we're hoping Clay comes back fully healthy for, for next season. Again, that we're going to have to wait probably till October, November to get that answer in terms of where he's at. But when you look at that pick, is that something you would say, hey, you know what? Let's try and go for a championship and win it next season and maybe trade that pick for a younger guy that you could sign long-term. Or do you think the Warriors should be kind of in a, hey, Steph's is still Steph. Draymond, like you mentioned, still playing at a pretty high level. Let's let's try and get another building block in place with Wiseman. So as these guys transition and they're, and they're getting to the to latter stages of their career, we still have a couple of young building blocks that'll keep us in the in the upper echelon of the NBA for 10, 15 years to come. You know, it's such an interesting year with the draft because of COVID and the 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 toll that this has taken. I think mentally on a lot of the players. Uh, I mean, just covering the Pac-12 games for ESPN. Zaire Williams, for example, who's, you know, for Stanford, who's likely a top 10 pick, you know, he had a death in the family. Um, so you're already dealing with COVID, then you have the family issue, and then you have to quarantine when you come back. So you're missing games. It, I, I think it's, this is the hardest year, obviously, to evaluate talent. So, I mean, Bob Myers is great at what he does, and he's got a great staff there. I think it's interesting because, right, you have to make a decision with assuming Clay can come back healthy, you know, Steph, where he is, he's still got a lot of years left. Do you say, you know what, we need to try to go do what we did a few years ago when we got Durant. We need to try to attract a major superstar and use some of the talent that's currently on the roster, use draft picks if we need to, or do you say, you know what, we, we like this nucleus, let's get a player that we think can help us now, but also when those guys are in the latter stages of their career can be a cornerstone of our franchise. I just don't know that you can find that in the draft this year. I just, I think there's so much, I mean, like I've got USC and Evan Mobley, who I've seen now four or five times in person. I mean, he's got potential to be a great player and he's probably the first or second pick in the draft depending on who's picking and if you want Kate Cunningham or you want Evan Mobley. But, you know, can Evan Mobley turn into a shooter? 
he, he's not there yet. So let's say you're Bob Myers, you're trying to evaluate, do we think Evan Mobley can help us? And you look at their roster and think, okay, maybe that's a position of need. Um, but you have to, more than ever, draft based on, okay, can we develop him into a shooter? Because he does everything else. Uh, so I, I just think, man, it, it, I know I've been long-winded with this answer because I'm trying to think about it. It's, it's such a tough year to evaluate the draft. And I'm not sure that, you know, many teams are going to win through the draft anymore. You know, I mean, you might get one player, but most of it's free agency and trade to try to build a super team. How difficult is this? Like, you know, we were talking before we started, like I'm, I'm from Canada, you know, saw the Raptors win it in 2019, which feels like a, a one-off. By the way, everybody who thinks that I'm from the West Coast of Canada. So no, I was not cheering for the Raptors. Okay, just to, just to let you know. Um, but when you when you watch it, like you look at that, and you're mentioning the small market teams. How, how, how do you think they would be able to build a contender? Because it's tough if, you know, you're not going to attract a LeBron James or a, a Kevin Durant or, you know, get a, a Kyrie Irving coming to sign with you. Let's just say if you are a team like the Orlando Magic. So how do you like how would you look at it if you put your GM cap on? What's an effective way? Do you think they, they would look at, have to look at more building through the draft and then build enough of a good product that they get a superstar willing to sign with them? Well, let's look at Utah, for example. They got the best record in the league. How have they done it? So they they drafted players or they've traded on draft night for Donovan Mitchell, Gobert. And then they've been able to get players like Boyan Bogdanovich, who isn't a superstar, but is a very good player. Uh, Mike Conley, very good player, not an all-star, but on the cusp of that. And, you know, if they don't want to, if they, it, let's say Utah does get to the conference finals this year or maybe even gets to the NBA finals because of how well they're coached, how well they play together, how well they shoot the ball. I mean, they're an excellent defensive team, but they're leading the NBA in threes. Maybe that's a model for those small market teams to say, you know what, we can win. We can compete even without attracting the huge superstar. You know, Milwaukee's an, an example of a team that, okay, you've got two all-stars, you've got back-to-back -back MVP and Giannis. We can get a Drew Holiday, but, you know, can we get that next superstar? And I don't know that you're going to be able to do that in Milwaukee. So I still think teams like Utah and Milwaukee are figuring out, okay, how do we compete with the teams that get the, the, the superstar players? I mean, Miami, the bubble was like the perfect setup for Miami. Like, I don't know that that's the blueprint to try to do it year in, year out, but how well they're coached, how well they play together. They've got a great player in Jimmy Butler uh, the bubble for them and the way they are was like the perfect storm for them to make that run. But I'm not sure you can do that in a normal year. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I'm with you. I think things are going to, and even economically, I mean, we're going to have to figure out what happens with the league going forward. If there is a bit of a cap crunch, if there isn't, I mean, they're going to have to figure all this out in terms of, okay, how are you going to be able to bring in, like you mentioned, all-stars, is it going to impact trades at the, at the, at the actual draft itself? So I think there's a lot of unknowns, but I'm with you. I, th I like what Utah has done. I've said this before though. A team who doesn't win in the in the at least a playoff round in the year before, uh, only four times that they've they've won a championship, dating back to like 1990, I believe. So I mean, or 1980, sorry. So I mean, you're looking at that, and that's a that's a huge stat. So I'm not a believer of the Utah Jazz, not yet, but we'll we'll see what happens. Like you mentioned, come playoff time, uh, we're talking about superstars, two of the best in the game, Steph Curry, LeBron James, facing off in, in the game. Like we mentioned, you'll be covering um, on Sunday. You're looking at, at at these two guys and their impact on the game. This is the second time that the Warriors and Lakers are playing. It was actually a great one on MLK weekend where the, where the Dubs got a 115-113 win. When you're looking at, at, at these two guys and these two teams, just for your experience, like like I mentioned, you've been, you've been doing this for, for a long time now. 
and, and getting to see the level of superstardom and their greatness. What do you think a separating factor when, when you look at guys like LeBron and Curry compared to the rest of the league in terms of how they carry themselves or, or mentally, where do you think the biggest, um, the difference is between those guys and, and an average NBA player, which I'm not knocking at all, obviously. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously the skill level, you know, I mean, LeBron James does everything. His basketball IQ, I think is to me above everything, you know, how smart he is. Um, you know, everything he says and how he handles himself with the media. I mean, it's, he's very smart. You know, he's, he just has a way of uh, communicating uh, to his teammates. There is a, you know, there's that belief factor when you're on his team, you just, you believe because you've got him. Um, you know, I just, I remember, you know, my first year was 2006. LeBron had already been uh, in the league for a few years. And that was the year that he led Cleveland to the finals and, uh, and they lost to San Antonio. But uh, I, I just, I, I didn't realize how big he was until I saw him standing next to Ben Wallace when Ben Wallace was a teammate. And I, and that was like, man, I mean, he, he is enormous. And then you just watch him with, with his passing ability. He, he's, he's obviously not the same here in year 18 that he was, you know, four years ago, even, but I mean, he's, he's adapted the way, you know, he shoots more threes. He, he's making threes. Um, I mean, the other night against Portland, he has blocks and steals, you know, it's not the chase down block like against Iguodala in the finals, but he's still impactful on the defensive end, you know, and Steph, I mean, have we ever seen a better shooter in, in the history of the game? I remember doing an NIT game when he was at Davidson and he, he still, you know, he still had that flair, but you know, you looked at his body and you're like, boy, is that going to work at the next level with the beating you're going to take night in night out. And I remember covered him early on in his career with the Warriors and the team wasn't very good. And yet him and Monte Ellis, how was that going to shake out? And now you look at Steph and look how big Steph is. Like he he's gotten so much stronger. I mean, he wouldn't, he wouldn't last without his strength. And I think his conditioning, and that's something that doesn't get talked about enough, but the fact that he, he's able to, I mean, think how many times he gets hit over the course of a game. Um, but just the way he is, again, you talk leadership, you talk about basketball intelligence. Uh, these are two ambassadors for the game as well as being great players. Yeah. I'm looking forward to, it. I mean, every time these, these two guys score off and obviously we got to see it with the, with the four straight finals with the, with the Warriors and, and LeBron when he, when he was on the Cavs. And I remember watching those games and looking back, I'm like, these guys have a little bit of like friendly animosity between them. I don't know if it's like, you know, like, I don't think it's personal, but when they're on the court, I mean, we saw them, you know, talking smack to each other a couple of times. And for me, it was funny. I was actually rewatching the last dance during the week because we were in the middle of a pandemic and I get bored and I have nothing else to do. So I need my sports fix. But um when you look back at the game and even comparing the eras, how do you compare the intensity of what it was like, you know, in the nineties and two, like early two thousands. And I was watching, you know, like they're showing the, the Pistons uh, bulls rivalry. And then you got into even the nineties where, um, you know, the, the Lakers are, or pardon me, the bulls are taking on Utah and, and it, it was just the intensity of the game. When you look at the two eras, wh what do you think the biggest difference is obviously other than the pace of the game, but just between the rivalries between the teams? Well, I think the rules, uh, the rules, I mean, you can't do what you did physically. You know, you mentioned the last dance. Uh, I mean, looking at what the Pistons did to Michael Jordan early in his career, right? I mean, how physical they were with him. I mean, you'd be thrown out uh, of the league if you did some of that stuff oh, today. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the biggest difference. I mean, watching the last dance and just seeing, you talked about Steph getting stronger. I mean, think how strong, how much, how much conditioning Jordan did and strength training to get to a point where he can endure that physicality night in, night out, and especially going up against 
the bad boys. It's so different now. And I think what, what that's done, you know, I see this with the NFL too, because the game is not as physical as it was. Now the players are, are in better shape. They're more athletic than they've ever been. It, I'm not saying the game isn't physical. It is, but because it's not as physical as it once was, and there isn't as much animosity uh, between players. I mean, you see uh, more, you know, playful guys dapping up before the game, after the game, there wasn't, you didn't see that 20 years ago. I mean, you're watching an NFL game now and it's a commercial timeout and there's guys on both sides, you know, of the huddle going up and dapping each other up. You don't, you never saw that 20 years ago. Um, but that's just part of it. I mean, the, most of these guys have known each other much longer. They, there's so many more ways to stay in touch. Uh, you know, 30 years ago, you didn't text, there weren't phones. So now <laughs> yeah. all these guys are buddies. They're all texting each other. They, they play together on Olympic teams. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's night and day from what it was. Yeah, looking looking back at at like you mentioned, we're, you know, I'm I'm an old man myself, so you look younger than me, so that's a, that's a good thing. But we're looking back at the at the times you you were coming up, you know, you're going to Syracuse, you're coming up in the sports media industry. Uh, when did you have a did you have a point for yourself where you're like, man, this is actually happening? Like I'm I'm working, I'm getting the call, the ESPN. Did, did you have a moment like that in your career when you when you were coming out of college? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, bounced around a little bit after college and then, you know, moved to Arizona in 2002 to do the Cardinals and then started with ESPN uh, the next year. I remember my first college football game in 2004 was Louisville and Kentucky. And I remember after the game, I was like, I think they'll bring me back next week. <laughs> I mean, I was under contract, but it was one of those like, OK, I did it. Like I, I, I made it. I, I got through it. Uh, I think I think they'll bring me back. And then. You know, when I got the phone call in 2006 that, hey, you're going to do some NBA games, um, you know, growing up a huge NBA fan watching, you know, I went to Syracuse and my two favorite broadcasters were Syracuse guys uh, growing up. And that's because they did NBA and NBC. That's Marv Albert and Bob Costas. So when I got the call that I was going to be doing NBA games, I, I was unbelievably thrilled. My first game was a Seattle Lakers game. Um, and needless to say, I was very nervous. Our coaches meeting with Phil Jackson, uh, I was incredibly intimidated and he made sure to intimidate me during that. <laughs> he basically asked for my resume. I'll never forget to John Black, the, the Lakers PR director afterwards, I think knew I was maybe a little rattled. So he comes out to center court. And he says, hey, come here, come, come back into the locker room. I want you to meet Kobe. And so I went to the locker room and Kobe was waiting for me and you know, said, congratulations. Um, that was, I'll never forget that. Um, and Kobe was cool to me ever since then. Uh, and you talk about being an ambassador for the game and that's what Kobe was like. He cared about everything about the game. Like if you, you were a rookie broadcaster getting a shot with ESPN, like that mattered to him because you were now part of that fraternity. So, uh, you know, it, th those two things stand out to me that that first college football game. And then that, you know, that first NBA game in 06. Like you mentioned, you've done all sorts of sports, you know, the college basketball, college football, the uh, women's college basketball, you know, any, anything, like NBA, NFL. What is the most memorable, memorable game you've covered in your career? <laughs> well, it's memorable for a bad reason. It's uh, Super Bowl 43 uh, when the Cardinals lost to the Pittsburgh Steelers and San, San Antonio Holmes. You know, I, I didn't write anything uh, the night before uh, because I didn't want to jinx it. Like, you, you know, if they win the Super Bowl, they were nine and seven. They were the you know wild card team. Uh, see, not a wild card team. They won the division, but, but at nine and seven, so they ended up hosting the NFC Championship game. They beat Philadelphia, go to the Super Bowl, and 
I, I, they're not going to beat the Steelers. So I'm like, why would I write something, um, you know, because I don't want to jinx it. And, and then, you know, they took the lead. Larry Fitzgerald's running into the end zone with two and a half minutes left. They take the lead. I'm like, oh, my goodness, I better write something down. Because if they win this game, uh, it's going to be on NFL Films forever. So I better make sure that I have every, my ducks in a row here to say it perfectly. And I remember um, Ben Roethlisberger throwing a pass that was caught by Santonio Holmes before the touchdown where a defender for the Cardinals fell down and the Steelers got into field goal range and I tore it up. I'm like, okay, <laughs> it's not happening. And then of course, you know, the pass to, to Holmes where I couldn't believe that Roethlisberger threw the ball mm-hmm. because he, he threw the ball there and you're like, that's getting picked. Didn't get picked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was, I mean, that was a fantastic, like, that was, I, I remember the ending of that game too. I was like yelling at the TV because I'm a 49ers fan. But I found myself cheering for the Cardinals just because the whole Kurt, Kurt Warner thing. And I'm like, they came out of nowhere to do that. So um, being there and, and I guess feeling the highs and then the lows of like, hey, I'm calling a Super Bowl and I'm, I'm here. And I'm doing this for the Cardinals. And then like, oh, man, that just happened. So that must have been. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I can see why that's embedded in your memory. Last one for you before we bounce here. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. You've done work with a ton of the greats in terms of the broadcasting industry, even with with uh, former players. Who is your favorite color commentator to work with and why? <laughs> I can't answer that. Oh, I, I, the politically correct one. Okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> it. honestly, I don't know. It's so hard to say. I love, I mean, honestly, everybody I work with, I enjoy for different reasons. You know, the one thing I do miss about more than anything about traveling and being on site is the friendships that you get to develop with your analyst. I mean, especially when you're working with someone every game, every week, you, you develop I mean, they become part of your family, like in a football season, you're traveling every week, you know, it's like your second family. And then, you know, in the NBA, it's such a small fraternity. There's not many announcers. So you, you get close to the people you work with. So I miss that, you know, college basketball, obviously every game I'm doing with Bill Walton, uh, you know, people think we hate each other. That's not true. Um, I, I, I can't, I, I honestly can't give you an answer just because I don't know, but I, I have been blessed to work with a lot of great analysts who are a lot of, uh, some of my best friends as well. Well, we'll make a deal, Dave. As soon as we're off here, you can tell me the real answer. So that's a, that, that's a good way to do it, but <laughs> uh, we'll wrap up there. I want to say thank you very much for joining me on this. Uh, it, it's been so cool getting to pick your brain and, and you know, you're one of the hardest working men, fifth game in a week. So hopefully you uh, get some rest today and, uh, and we're looking forward to seeing you call the Lakers and Warriors on Sunday night. That does it for this episode of the Collaborative Warriors podcast. Don't forget, subscribe to our YouTube page. You can also listen to the audio portion. We are on iTunes, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you get your podcast fix. And Brady and I will be back with the recap on goldenstateofmind.com after the Lakers and Warriors wrap up on Sunday. That does it for this episode. We'll catch you all again next time. 